Hi guys, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We got Brian with us today. What's up, Heretics? And you guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge the status quo, which always needs challenging. But first, don't forget to like and subscribe to The Church Split. And if you'd like to partner with us, you can partner with us on Patreon. There we release content earlier than everyone else, and you do have a direct connection to us uh, if that is something that you wish. Otherwise, you can email us at the uh, church split at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Any uh, things you'd like to to pick our brains about if you'd like our, us to react to a certain video you found or whatever to shoot it our way and we'll see what we can do but uh with that being said today we have a fun episode because today we are talking about presuppositional apologetics and king james onlyism which is a bit of an odd combination so uh but this is actually something brian you said this to me a while ago you're the one who found this debate yeah. Yeah, I, I probably have sat on this for more than a year now because this aired in September of 2022. And I we talked about it a lot back then, like, oh, we should do this. And we were like, pull me some timestamps, and I never did. And then here we are. It's been a year. So. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things is that you wanted to respond to this. Like this is one of those, this is one of those Brian projects where he was like, I really do want to do a response to this. And so we finally, you know, got together. It took us only a year to do it and i'm going yeah let's definitely talk about this because what this is is a video uh it's a debate of james white versus a guy uh with with the last name of van cleek i think um van cleek. what was that dr peter van cleek he's a doctor mm -hmm. and he's from my alma mater calvin college <laughs> Oh, nice. So we could expect of the same amount of studiousness that you provide, right? Well, right? I studied engineering, so he studied in the seminary. It's a little bit different. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You go to Kelvin Seminary. You know what that means. Um, so, uh, yeah. So we have Dr. James White and Dr. Peter Van Cleek on the Texas Receptus. Um, and is it equal to the New Testament autographs, things like that. And uh, so one of the things that we found ironic about this is that, and you'll see as we go, is how... Now, one of the things that you'll notice, I should say, is in the Calvinist community, in the Reformed community, there, the method of apologetics that is often preferred is what's called presuppositional apologetics. Now, there's a lot of like a lot of other things in the world. Uh, in apologetics, there are different methodologies. Okay, we have evidential, classical, presuppositional, and really, what it is like classical has got a few like different ways you can go about it. It has some branching paths, but otherwise, it's kind of what it sounds like. Evidential is means that you're basing it off of evidence uh presuppositional means that you're kind of presupposing something and then classical it kind the the method the primary method of classical apologetics is kind of what like i'm an evidentialist who uses classical apologetics apologetic methods okay and basically what it is that you present some sort of case for God in general, maybe the Kalam cosmological argument, maybe the teleological argument, maybe the moral argument, whatever, insert argument for God here. Um, and then you use some sort of outside of affirming some sort of argument for the existence of God, you shift over here and then you give it a case, a positive case for Christianity, like a resurrection argument or something. So then you take the two, you combine them. Therefore, it's a classical apologetic for Christianity, if that makes sense. So uh, what today we'll be discussing more on the presuppositional side and what that means. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. One, it's we're not advertising this debate as a good debate. It's a terrible debate. 
like don't recommend watching all well what is it almost three hours three hours yeah. and 33 minutes don't recommend it at all but it does have some interesting nuggets that we like to pull out because it's kind of fascinating will and i have watched a lot of james white debates on king james onlyism and tr onlyism and they're quite good and we usually enjoy it quite uh, quite a bit and we always say that james white we think is his best when he's debating on this topic um but this one's kind of funny because he's thrown a curveball that I don't. Yeah, think this is <laughs> someone who uses a reverse reverse Uno card on James White, and you can tell he doesn't know how to handle it. And we'll talk about how the reason why we think White is so successful uh, on this particular topic, as opposed to maybe his Calvinist arguments and debates or his atheist arguments and debates. Uh, but with, first. We want to make sure we steel man this case, and we want to make sure that we allow White the opportunity to present what presuppositional apologetics is. And after he gets done explaining it, which I think he does uh, not a very good job at it, I will try to clear the air a little bit. There's one other thing to keep in mind, and I'll let you go. There's one other thing to be kept in mind. This has tremendous apologetic application as well. It's not just because of Jehovah's Witnesses or anything else. It has tremendous... Tremendous apologetic application. Here's, here's why. Most Christian apologists present a, a method of defending the faith that basically says what you do is you, you get together with the unbeliever and say, you say, I'll tell you what. Let's, let's stand on this neutral ground and let's just reason together. Let's, let's, we'll, we'll, I will lay aside my presuppositions. You lay aside your presuppositions. And let's just, let's just come together on neutral ground and we'll just reason with one another. And I will demonstrate to you the reasonableness of believing that there is a God. That's a very, very common perspective, a very, very common approach. But think about it for just a moment. If this is true, if Jesus Christ as the Son, the eternal Son of God, created all things... Could someone explain to me how you can find anything that's neutral ground in what he himself has created? Because if it exists, it exists because he made it. If it's a fact, it's a fact because he defines it. And so any Christian who pretends there's such a thing as a neutral ground upon which to stand is actually being deceptive. I mean, if I follow that through, what I'm saying is, Okay, we'll stay on this neutral ground, but I really don't believe there is any neutral ground. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring you along and pretend that there is. But eventually, somewhere, we're going to get down the road, and I'm going to have to start telling you about who Jesus really is. And you might end up actually reading this. And if you read this, you're going to go, wait a minute. If this is the Jesus you're trying to convince me I need to bow the knee to and believe in, you lied to me back at the start. Because you said, oh, yeah, I can lay aside my presuppositions. Here's, our, 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 here's some, some neutral ground. But you don't believe there is such a thing as neutral ground because if Jesus is actually the creator of all things, there is no neutral ground, and you lied to me. And I don't ever want to have that happen. I don't ever want to be in a situation where someone comes to me and says, you deceived me. You held back part of what you actually believe just to try to get me to come along. That's why I can't engage in that kind of apologetic. Because, and, and that's, that's why the Bible actually says in Romans chapter 1, what is mankind doing? Is, is, is mankind really in a situation where, 
well, I don't know if God exists. I'm not sure. There's, you know, there's this and there's that. What does Romans 1 say? God has made his existence clearly known through what has been made so that man is unapologetous, without an apologetic, and that man is suppressing that truth. He's holding that truth down. That doesn't mean every person has as clear an understanding or suppresses in the same way. There's religious suppression. There's, there's pagan suppression. There's, there's elitist scientific suppression. There's different ways of holding the truth down. But the fact is when you bring facts to a rebel who's already holding other facts down, they're just going to suppress that fact as well. You got to be dealing with their rebellion first and foremost. And so there's a lot of implications. There's a lot of, of, of results from understanding the radical nature of the Christian claim. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, and the reason why, so well, we should first discuss what he says here a little bit. And I'll talk a yeah. little bit more about presuppositional apologetics. So, he first says it's like deceptive to say, because like there's a very popular approach of everyone getting together on neutral ground and be like, oh, we'll get neutral ground and I will demonstrate to you how God is reasonable. The thing is, is that you'll notice in that very like approach, you are admitting the fact that I will demonstrate to you that God exists. You never said that like you're neutral about it. Yeah. Like whenever someone's like, hey, let's just get together on neutral ground and have a conversation and i will you know lead you to this direction no one's saying to leave your bias at home like i don't i don't think anyone means that what they're saying is that like hey give me an uh, ample opportunity to present to you a case without you objecting without you fighting me just neutrally stand there for a minute and just hear me out that's what they mean like no one's saying that you can, because very few people that I know actually can say you, leave, can, you can leave your bias, right? Like we all have a bias, but he's saying like, hey, we're going to sit here and allow me to make the case. Because he's like, that's deceptive. Anyway, how is it deceptive? Because you already made it clear in his own example, let's get together on neutral ground and I will demonstrate to you how God is reasonable. That's not deceptive. That's saying, just come here together with me and let me talk to you about this and i'm just asking that you leave your presuppositions of how you think the world works aside for two seconds and let me present to you maybe an alternate case yeah and i think most discussions kind of assume this you have to start with some level of common ground you have some place that you can build off of and typically with a debate the assumed common ground is that given enough reason and logic and evidence you can convince someone of the truth the truth should be more clearly known if you talk about it and show the facts more facts more data should shine light on the truth and that's kind of the idea of a debate is both sides are, are presenting their points and showing their facts and it should be clear to the audience if it's a well-done debate which are the true facts that are actually showing what is correct and which ones are not actually facts but opinions that are detracting from or against the truth so i also think it's kind of funny too since white's a calvinist and this whole idea of having any kind of apologetic doesn't really make sense because he believes in this idea of total inability so he believes from the point of total depravity that those that are not elect are unable to be convinced of the gospel right so unless they've been given the gift of faith or Unless they've been given the gift of grace or faith, they cannot believe. Yeah. And they have to be regenerated first before they have faith. Faith logically 
precedes or comes after regeneration. So if you're talking anyone pre-regenerate, even if they are elect, they're not going to be convinced yet. Right, exactly. So that again, it's kind of that self-defeating thing, right? Like, well, let me convince you, but I don't think you can. I, but I think you're unable to be convinced. But I'm going to also chide you for not being convinced. Um, yeah. it's, it, it's so it kind of is this weird self-defeating circle. That's part of the problem with Calvinism. It does create an odd amount of circular reasoning, or like, or just it makes no sense to engage in half the stuff that they ask you to engage in. But um, the other, so and then to call it deceptive seems like it's a huge stretch. Uh, because like you said, I mean, this is why like a lot of times one of your things that you'll do whenever you're about to engage somebody in a debate, like one of the things that Brian does, like, is he will a lot of times ask somebody if you, you can tell they're a secularist, you'll go, well, can truth be known? Is truth even real? And oftentimes they'll agree because if they don't agree that truth is real, then you have to have a whole other conversation before you get, even get to the Jesus talk. Yeah, um, the ground is so far away. You, you need to go way back. <laughs> exactly. So and when they go, yeah, there can be true. Like, okay, cool. So now based on that, if you are presented with enough facts, you, it means that you would adhere to the fact that something about that is true and that you would follow it, right? And then usually you, uh, you kind of, I've noticed you do that a lot. You'll kind of set it up to make sure that you're setting yourself up for success. And that way when they start rejecting facts you could be like well remember we agreed upon this so i'm just asking that you present a better case against this fact otherwise it should be something within your consideration because you said truth is knowable that we can make reasonable judgments and that you'd change your mind like so that, that's one of the reasons that's not and so again it's not deceptive uh he, he's just taking a big big stretch on that um because the idea of neutral ground isn't saying that and I think you kind of touched on this. Neutral ground isn't saying that you yourself are no longer neutral. Like, because that would mean that every single time I engage in a discussion with somebody who's an unbeliever, suddenly I become a neutral about Christianity and I lead myself to Christ every single time. I'm not neutral. Like, no. you know what I mean? Like, I don't abandon my faith and become neutral and then walk back into the faith, nor do they just like abandon their atheism or agnosticism or Buddhism or whatever ism. And what it means is that if we sit on neutral ground, it means that we're sitting at common ground enough to be able to have a conversation. So it's not saying that you're neutral when someone says neutral ground. They're saying that you're willing to hear a case. Yeah, it's, it's a common ground. It's, it's a colloquialism. You don't even say that. Like you don't – the Christian atheists are getting together to discuss this topic. The atheist isn't going, well, I'm going to reject my atheism for a minute just so I can start on common ground. And the Christian isn't going, well, I – I must say for a minute that Jesus doesn't exist, and let's just start here. So now we both agree. We both agree that we just we're just nebulous amoebas that have no knowledge of anything, and let's walk through it. That's not how anyone discusses anything. It's the, when they even start a debate, they say, "You're taking the pro. You're taking the con." There already is presupposed positions here. Now, remove the formal debate. If you're just having a conversation with someone, and they go, "Oh, I thought, isn't that kind of what we're supposed to do when they give a defense?" Like the defense is, I already assume that you're Christian and tell me about it. Why are you different? Why are you acting strange? Why are you not acting like the rest of the world? You seem excited and happy. What's up with that? You have a flourishing family. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, then he goes, uh, but then he, his other point that he says, like, it's a fact because that's how God defined it. And like some things are probably that way, but also like it's also because it could just be his nature, right? Something is right or wrong because he is 
like he might say something as good as because he's good, right? Um, so it's just it's just one of those weird Calvinist things where because what they believe is a form of voluntarism, which for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, is just basically whatever is right or wrong or whatever exists is only because God commands it to be so. So God arbitrarily chose that rape is wrong, but in another world he could have created where rape is good. Um it, it, so it's kind of that. So Calvinists love voluntarism because obviously if he can make like such things arbitrary or just because he says so, then he can also choose whom he wants and whom he doesn't want to save and still be good. Right. Like he can still do those things. Those, those, they also become meaningless. Like in my view, like voluntarism makes morality ultimately meaningless and pointless because it's not a reflection of who God is. So it's a reflection of what God arbitrarily chose because it was Tuesday. Um, but it, they love to do that where it's like, well, God says it, so therefore it's right. But it's like, well, no, God says, yeah, it is. God says it because it's right, but it's not because he arbitrarily chose it. It's because he is good, and these are the groundings of such facts. So, like, the, his nature. Um, and not yeah. to punch at the, the total depravity position of white. Oh, you keep over punching. And over again. But when he gets to Romans 1, he's saying that they're they are man is suppressing that truth and holding that truth down. Um, but he believes that they're in a state from birth where they have to hold the truth down and they cannot do otherwise. So it is kind of a weird accusation to give someone. And I don't think Romans one gets, gets Calvinism out of that because it really is just, you're just saying that you're saying that they're doing something, but also they're born in that state. So they really can't do otherwise. They can't not suppress the truth. They have to. They will continually. So, and I don't think it also matters what apologetics you choose, right? If if the people that are going to be saved were chosen before the beginning of the world, then your apologetic method actually doesn't matter. Hmm, you all. said choose. Exactly. <laughs> you don't have a choice. And all, like the, even the idea of suppressing the truth, they act like that means that you, they, like all in general, mankind only suppresses the truth and can never come to the knowledge of truth at all, um, which just gets silly because like I've I have different people in my life and in my family that uh, I've had to have serious conversations with. You have too. And what we do, what we do a lot of times, sometimes people reject the good advice and sound advice that they hear and they suppress the truth, right? They're not listening They suppress it, but eventually they come around and they come to an understanding. Does that mean that they did not have the ability to choose and listen? You know, as well as I do, anyone who's ever given anyone any sort of advice that they have the ability to choose. They might be suppressing it, but they have the ability to, and that's what makes you frustrated frustrated so you know that they are able to change their mind to change their behavior so suppression doesn't mean inability and there, there, there's there's that false equivocation equivocation that calvinism is just clearly constantly known for is this constant <laughs> false equivocation of what those words mean and what is happening in those contexts so there are um because yeah, there are you believe that, go ahead no you go ahead i was just gonna say and if you believe that that we are means for God's plan, that God is using us to fulfill and work out what he has decreed um, before the beginning of time, then again, I don't know that your apologetic matters either. If God decreed that evidential apologetics is what was going to convince someone because they were elected to believe, then it will. And if God decided that presuppositional apologetics was what was going to convince so-and-so, then it will. Like it, the choice in the apologetic, I don't think doesn't matter at all. One, it's right. not really a choice in Calvinism to begin with. 
And two, even if it is, um, the result's still the same. <laughs> exactly. So when you, because like one of the things he says here, like when it talks about also like the idea of suppression, like the reality is that there's different ways of holding the truth down. You know what I mean? Like that you can hold, you can suppress the truth because you're stubborn, because you're sinful, because you're ignorant. There's a lot of reasons to suppress truth. And so to make it all just because you're unable to accept it just because your sinful nature, I think, ignores what we know by lived experience. And I know like lived experience can sound a little anecdotal, but Brian, and you and I have talked about this plenty of times. Your theology, if it doesn't line up with reality, is a bad theology. Uh, I mean, it just is. So, I mean, you can't have a theology that says the sky is pink. You'd be like, that doesn't make sense. It's blue. And you, okay, you're right. So that means your theology that might say the sky is pink is wrong, right? Just like if you're saying that there's only one way that that truth is held down, because the other thing that they'll say is like, well, they can know certain truths, like that the sky is blue, but they can't know the truth of Jesus Christ. So now we're selecting what truth they can and cannot know, what truth they can choose and cannot choose. So, okay, why is that? Well, the Bible says so. Does it really say that? I think you're making it say that. And also, just judging by reality, the amount of times I've seen people reasoned into faith disproves that. So it doesn't line up with reality. Exactly. And if if neutral ground is something that you cannot start with and you could not essentially find a common ground to build from, that you must presuppose your position. What will be important in the debate that we're going to, the clip from the debate we're going to listen to is you can then presuppose any starting position. And you can then say, if I don't start with that starting position, White says I'm a liar. Mm -hmm. I'm being deceptive and I shouldn't do it. And if they don't agree with me, they're just suppressing the truth. They are. I have to deal with their rebellion first and foremost, like you said before. I, before I, before I continue. So you can see how that can create some real condescension. And I wonder if even that's why sometimes we see that condescension from white come out in the debates. We're going to see that with, with uh, white and uh, Van Cleek. But it's. I think it's a problem. So it's and it's one of these things that. You can't have this shifting standard where if you're like, this is what you must do because this is right. And you have to you have to follow this in order to be consistent. And then you don't in a, in a very similar circumstance, then it's a problem. And then who's the liar? Right. Who's the liar then? Right. Like exactly. you're accusing people who meet with neutral ground, which really just means common ground to be able to explore truth without killing each other. Um, that's what that term usually means. Uh if you are like saying like, hey, you have to do, you have to, I'm going to hold you to one standard while I don't do the other standard. Now, who's the real liar? You know, the liar is the person who's not holding himself to his own standard. Um, and because this idea, so I, I, just to kind of give the audience an idea of why, like what this means, because why it's like you have to deal with the rebellion first. It's not the evidence that's going to convince them because Romans 1 says that they're without an apologetic based on creation alone. So because what White fails to see is as he's using this idea of Romans one leaves you without an excuse, without uh, an apologetic, is that the reason why creation alone is enough to leave someone without excuse isn't because this person just is going to naturally know all this stuff by by because you know, he should, but his sinful nature is making it to where it's impossible. What it says is that the universe is evidence 
to show to demonstrate that there is a God because it, there is something rather than nothing. There is something that seems well designed. You have consciousness. You have all these different things. So there's this weird composition fallacy where he's going, well, if there if it leaves you without excuse, therefore. Presuppositional apologetics is correct. No, no, it just says that there's evidence here. You're doing a, you're, you're falsely equivocating. You're committing logical fallacies everywhere, and so that's that's a problem. And here, let me just demonstrate to you the reason why listeners, if they're on the edge of this, is what White says done practically of how it would actually go, because he says that you have to deal with the rebellion first because evidence isn't what matters, right? So that means you have a kid that goes up to you who's been going to church all his life and he goes, man, so man, Brian, I'm really struggling with my faith. I don't think God is real. I experience this evil and that evil. And I also think the Big Bang and evolution can explain these things. I think there's evidence for this, blah, 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 blah. I just, I, 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 I really want God to be real, but I just don't think he is because of these reasons. The presuppositional approach, according to White, is that you have to deal with this rebellion first. You grab a King James Bible, you smack that kid across the face, and you say, who are you, old man? Repent, right? <laughs> like, but that's kind of what it is, right? It means that when someone goes to question or is scared or worried about their faith or someone is seeking things, you just tell them, repent. You don't show them the evidence that gives them permission to surrender to God yeah. because they might, the reason why they might not be surrendered is because they don't think that they have good enough evidence yet. And that's such a big ask. And they're like, okay, I want to make sure I'm surrendering to the right thing, which is a good thing that you should be leading them to. That's why we're like pastors, a pastor is called a shepherd, right? Like that's the a term for shepherd. It's like, we are to lead people. And if we're not leading them to the water, like, no, no, just tell them to repent. Like, yeah, right. It's like slapping in the face of the Bible. Tell them just repent. Stop asking questions. Don't think, just believe. Yeah. And you think about even like what first Timothy three says about what elders are supposed to be. It's, it's saying, this is how you be a good example for other believers so that you can have a successful church because your life gives evidence on how to live and that you are following the truth. Your life proclaims the truth of Jesus as evidence. Also, why do you think in the Old Testament, God is like, I am the God who led you out of um, Egypt, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Do you think he's just like mentioning those names arbitrarily? No, he's saying like, look at the evidence. I'm the guy who did those things. I'm the God who provided Israel a ransom to escape and be redeemed out of uh, Egypt. I'm the God who uh, made Abram to Abraham. I'm the one who led Isaac and Jacob. He's saying, look at the evidence. Now follow me. Like that's why there are signs and wonders of the spirit when it, when uh, the when the after the resurrection and when the apostles were working because it was going. Look at the evidence. We are from God. That's why this why Paul says that Jews seek for a sign because that's the evidence that God has implanted into the uh, up up to that time that there to that God would be accompanied oftentimes with miracles. So yeah, it authenticates God and His message. Right, and then the other thing is that faith itself. 
is like it's not just a blind thing faith even by the very nature is like by the very definition like kind of means something like a good reason to believe or good reason to trust and it's like that's that's innately built into the word and white would know this because he likes to quote greek arbitrarily like (laughs) he he did in this video that's like a white thing like everyone knows that he's just going to say the word in greek say the phrase in greek and then he's going to repeat it in english and uh and of course i I honestly think it's like a flex for him at this point where he's just like, look, I know, I know this enough to be able to say it and then act like I'm like super smart where some people might be doing it as just a way to kind of familiarize you. Like at this point with white, I'm like, nope, nope, this is a flex. I, I, I'm convinced it is. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's what uh, white's debate tactics are for another time. Yeah. We've got to hit that a few times. That might be a fun episode to do later. We want to get into this clip now. Yeah, let's get into the debate now. So that, oh, real, sorry, I forgot to explain one other thing about presuppositional apologetics. So we just heard him explain this. And Eli Ayala, Ayala has a video that goes through this. And uh, Eli is probably the nicest Calvinist presupper I actually know. Like, he's like, such a good guy. Like, he really is a good dude. Like, I really like him. Um, but the reality is his, you know, I find his beliefs just as, you know, ridiculous as I find Calvinism and presuppositionalism in general. Uh, but I love Eli. Like, he's a good guy. Like, you know what I mean? This is what I say. I'm like, I still find your beliefs ridiculous, but you're a good dude. I like you. But he explains Hashtag in his video what? Hashtag same team. Exactly. But he says in his explanation of it that the difference between presuppositional and evidential is the approach. Evidential apologetics does a bottom-up approach. So it's like, hey, let's build and let me lead you there to God and to the reasons. And presuppositional is a top-down approach, which says, like, God exists, and you can't justify logic, reason, any of these things uh, without, um, without God. So you, they presuppose God's existence into the conversation and basically force other people to demonstrate that those things exist, like logic and morals and stuff, while not ever having to demonstrate that God exists. They just, it's a top-down approach or it's a bottom-up approach, okay? And so what that means is that you're oftentimes getting people frustrated because you're trying to get them to justify um, things and you already have a justification because you have God and these people don't have a justification and you're just trying to expose to them. The problem is with that is it doesn't demonstrate how your grounding for those things and justification for those things also have merit. Like, okay, so God exists and it can ground all those things, but if God's not real, I don't have to accept that. Like, I don't have to accept your premise. I don't have to accept your presupposition. Maybe you're right. Maybe morality is entirely subjective. Cool. I don't have to accept your premise. That's why it's good. Or some people might be like, I don't understand what you even mean. How can can you even demonstrate how I can't have logic without God? Which is why, like, even as a presupper, you'll eventually have to explain, if you're doing your job well enough, why logic, like, why God is necessary to justify logic or these different things. Okay, well, if you're doing that, well, congratulations. Now you're having to do a bottom-up approach anyway, which means that you're just there like that's why the only thing i only time i'd use a presuppositional apologetic ever if i were ever to use it which i never would because i don't think i think it's a backwards methodology but if i were to use it it would be only with somebody who already believes in god right like okay well we could both presuppose at least like let's say you're arguing somebody about calvinism okay well we both agree the bible is the word of god okay well we can both presuppose that into this conversation but guess what when i'm demonstrating non-calvinism to you 
I'm going to be using an evidential approach. I'm going to be showing you evidence and building you to the conclusion. So no matter what, presuppositional apologetics is a backwards methodology in my mind. It's why we are told to give a defense. It's why we, we see Paul reason with them in the temple. It's why we see that these things are evidence of, to convince people of. It's why we see God himself point to his acts and why we can trust him, because it's evidence attached to the reasons. Uh, so the whole... I. And their 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 argument here, uh, like Eli's and them, will be like, well, it's because we're at, we're going to hang on to the biblical worldview in order to have these conversations. But starting from the ground up does not mean you're surrendering to biblical worldview. It means that you're just demonstrating how to get to the biblical worldview. And like, hey, let me just show you how to get there because all the things that I'm going to build up to lead to the biblical worldview add up to the biblical worldview. Now, I'll add so, one thing to what you said. I will use presuppositional apologetics in one other circumstance, and that is with another precept to show them how precept is stupid. Um, and the best example I've ever seen of this, shout out to David Paulman. He did this with Anthony Kidd, who has the Beers and Bible podcast, and it was fascinating. It was a master class in using someone's own argumentation against them because David Pullman was precepting that precept is wrong. <laughs> and it was, I, it was, it was amazing. Like a hundred comment Facebook thread that I just enjoyed reading. Um, and uh, so that is, I think the one other good example of using presuppositional apologetics is to show someone that it's so ridiculous. And I think we're going to see that a little bit in this debate clip because it kind of does that, but White doesn't really. I don't think he's really getting what he's getting. Um, getting hit with. and I'll and I'll explain why presuppositionalism is the easiest form of apologetic, but also the worst. But uh, it's actually funny because I I did that same methodology t uh, yesterday. I've been kind of on an off and on like I've been in a thread with the King James onlyist. Oddly enough, since we're talking about Texas Receptus onlyism and King James onlyism a little bit today. But it's funny because he kept being like the pure words of God. And why is your versions take away these verses? And I try to explain like textual history and all that. But of course, he's like saying, yeah, I'm not answering this question. He's just being like the typical belligerent uh, King James onlyist. And so finally, I was like, well, actually, I have an ESV onlyist. And it's the pure words of God. And I want to understand why the King James adds to it and changes words. And I started like precepting him back. And he was like, it's all frustrated with me. And I was like, that's what you're doing. It's the same thing. You're presupposing you're right and then telling everyone else to justify why they disagree with you, as opposed to maybe you haven't even demonstrated why anyone should take your case seriously yet. So presuppositionalism <laughs> is backwards. And I know we'll probably get accused of straw manning it, but the reality is that this that's there's a reason why it's called presuppositionalism. It's because you literally presuppose God's existence and you don't have to demonstrate such. All right, yeah, let's get into the clips now because then you're, we're going to see the legendary James White, yes. the presuppositionalist apologetic apologist. He advocates for presuppositionalism. He's for presuppositionalism. And then we're going to see how frustrated he gets when someone precepts him. <laughs> Exactly. Now, for those that are new to the channel, Will and I are not precepts at all. I think we made that clear so far, but just to what? say it explicitly, we are not. We are also not TR onlyness, Texas Receptus onlyness, um, which is essentially the the Greek manuscript text that was combined to create um, that was used for the King James Bible. And uh, so, those that are King James onlyness, 
if they want to go a little bit farther back, they're having textual arguments. They will, they might take the Texas Receptus only as position. Um, so it's kind of, a, it's, it's a, I think a little bit more unique debate because James White's usually talking about King James onlyism. So it's kind of fun to yeah, take one more step back and, and uh, really get at the Texas Receptus. Um, and then just real quick too, just to mention, we've had a couple episodes recently that are, kind of in the same ballpark of this. We had an episode on Evanescent Grace, which I think will come up a little bit here as we talk about this, as well as uh, a debate response about Matt Dillahunty, which is another debate, which was kind of fascinating. So anyways, if debate responses interest you at all, please check out that other episode with Matt Dillahunty, um, Rage Quitting a Debate. And, uh, and if you're interested more in some Calvinism and how it kind of affects argumentation against certain positions like Texas Receptus Onlyism, uh, check out the Evanescent Grace episode as well. Without further ado, here we go. No, no, no. Again, that would be truncating this. The entire argument that you're doing is all based on posterior historical evidence. My argument is much broader than that. The reason why I believe fellowship or uh, the reading there in the TR is because in the end, it is not really my choice, right? It is that the church, particularly the Holy Spirit, working through the church, as he does with all your other beliefs, by the way, everything that you believe is the Holy Spirit teaching you how to be a good husband or a good wife, how to be an obedient child, how to submit to government, and maybe maybe not, right? All of that boils down to the Holy Spirit teaching you. This is how you do Christian belief. So when we say, okay, well, should I believe the woman caught in adultery is the word of God. The question is not manuscript evidence primarily. It's whether or not the spirit of God working through the people of God by the word of God convinces you of such. So Dr. this Bankley, is where it begins. So what you're saying is that the church at some point in time uh, changed what it said about Ephesians 3.9. Well, the church has changed its mind about a lot of things. By the Holy Spirit. Oh, no can't be by the Holy Spirit, oh, okay. we do make errors, that is so, for sure. Okay, so for the first 1,200 years of church history, the church had oikonomia at Ephesians 3.9, and then the church changed to koinonia. And uh, when did it do that, and when did the church gather? Who was at the council, uh, and what, what did they examine in their analysis of that text? Again, I, I just think that this is a broken way to look at it. Because we have about 5,100, according to recent tallies, 5,100 Greek manuscripts. 5,600. It's actually 51, according to uh, Miss and Mistakes. They said that's probably the better um, average. Anyway, the point is, is that if you end up having uh, a text that is the way that he's described it, the point is there are so many manuscripts that were missing across time that he cannot account for. And so he's making us make a decision based on what we have right now, as if the church has only been able to make a decision about what we have right now. The point is, is he's arguing from absence of data and trying to propound a positive argument. He doesn't know what the church had a thousand years ago. He guesses, but he doesn't know. And so he doesn't know what the church was writing. And so now he's making me give an account about where that reading came from, when the vast majority of the manuscripts we do have, or the vast majority of the manuscripts in Christianity are lost, we have a fraction of a fraction of the New Testament manuscripts. So, and he says, now you have to make a choice based on a fraction of a fraction. 
So, so I don't have to make a choice. So Dr. Van Cleef, you can't show me one person who preached a sermon and gave your reading, quoted a verse and gave it your way. But you are telling us that the church, by the Spirit of God, tells us this is the reading. Is that how you do textual? Is that how Erasmus derived this? Everybody see this? Everything is coming back to textual criticism. A bit of a Freudian slip there. It's all coming back to how you make an analysis of the evidence. Again, this is a straight up Bart Ehrman, unchristian, atheistic argument. He has made <laughs> no argument at all from scripture and how Christians formulate belief. He could make an argument from philosophy if he wanted. I even let that, I left that out of my arguments. All right. I could have brought that in here, but no. No, we're all just stuck up on the evidence. But none of you believe what you believe based on evidence. Except, you know what? For the Bible, you better believe it. Because James White, Dr. White says, you know what? The evidence says it should be a different word. Dr. So Dr. that's Van how Cleek? we come to the conclusion. Dr. Van Cleek, should your beliefs be determined by the content of Scripture? Yes. So therefore, your belief about what Ephesians 3.9 should be determined by the content of Ephesians 3.9, right? Yes. Okay, so the reading that Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.9 should be very important to us, should it not? Uh, yes. You cannot give us any instance where the church has spoken about the proper reading of Ephesians 3.9, can you? Well, right here. Been this way for a very okay, long so, time. So, been this way for hundreds okay. of years. <laughs> hundreds of years. Okay. So, the Latin Vulgate was used by God in the Western Church for 1,100 years and has numerous readings in it that this rejects. So, which was the Holy Spirit? Well, we would say that just like normal church, this is a great thing. Everybody know about federal vision, big fight about among Presbyterians about whether who's in the covenant and who's not. It's a big Presbyterian fight right now. All we're saying is that in the end, Yes, sometimes the church can make a mistake. But, but saying that does not all of a sudden say, well, then we got to get rid of the church in making the decision because it makes mistakes. No, that's the way God laid it out for us. You come to your conclusion by the Holy Spirit, speaking through his words to your heart, and you submit to those words by faith. That's, what you come, that's how you come to any belief, including the words in Scripture. And so if that's the way it gets done, can mistakes happen? Certainly can. But does that recuse the church from its responsibility? No. Same thing. Your husband can make mistakes. Your wife can make mistakes. Well, then let's abolish marriage and let's do something else. It's a ridiculous idea. Do you, Dr. Van Cleek, do you really believe that the list of beliefs you just laid out has anything whatsoever to do with answering the question when you are saying that this is what we must follow and we ask you, where did this come from? And your answer is, we pray about it. Is, it, is that how you, have you prayed about every variant in the New Testament? Have you? The answer to the question is just to tell you that this is how belief works. Like, I can't even believe I have to defend this. Like, I'm in a group of Christians trying to say, hey, you know how you believe in your Bible? Like, you believe in everything else. You know how you believe in a reading in your Bible? Like, you believe in everything else. And now I have to defend that, though. Like, it's like, nope. No, that's incorrect. You can't believe in the Bible like you believe in everything else because the Bible is just so different because, you know, we have manuscripts. Like, so, so when I ask a, a Mormon, when a Mormon missionary says, I prayed about the Book of Mormon, 
and the Holy Spirit testified to me uh, that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, uh, how would you respond? Because you just told us the only way we can know the Bible's Word of God is by praying about it. I would respond like a good presuppositionalist and say you don't serve the living and true God and you don't believe in the authority of the Word of God. And therefore, you're wrong. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's something weird. That's nice, and he's going to respond by saying, well, you've got a different Holy Spirit, and that's really weird. So are you seriously suggesting that what the – are you seriously suggesting that John Calvin taught us to pray over differences in manuscripts? Can you – Here we go. That's a good spot to stop. <laughs> oh, my. So first off, you lose this brain cells, uh, Van Cleek. Like, you just do. Like that is, But I'm wondering if anyone else noticed the straight – hypocrisy now that we've shown white talking about presuppositionalism and then that debate the thing that you pointed out when this debate first came out is that van cleek presupposes the kjv is or the, the texas receptus is the proper uh text and that he says right there that none of you believe in it or believe in anything basically because of the evidence. So he's presupposing James White, and then James White's going, but look at the evidence. Thank this you. is why I've said <laughs> I've said for a long time that White is so good on the textual issue, and he can actually do a really good job at it. Like he's actually one of those areas where I'm like, yeah, you actually do pretty well here. But it's because he argues in the textual realm like an evidentialist. Yeah. And so then he just like, that's why he's able to demolish King James only because he's like, I've brought evidence. You've brought presuppositionalism. And he won't say that because he's a fan of presuppositionalism and is apologetic. But suddenly he becomes an evidentialist when he discusses like textual issues. But then he switches that out when he be, is, argues atheist. I don't think he realizes that his methodology is. A contradiction there but this guy presupposes him and it's just hilarious to see white get frustrated with it yeah and it's really kind of fascinating because you know white brings up a really good point about ephesians right we have two different readings we have the readings from the majority manuscripts and it's reading it this way and we have the texas receptus that's reading it this way and we have quotes from different church fathers that are reading ephesians the way that the majority manuscripts have and the Texas Receptus disagrees with it and White even challenges him. He asks for evidence from Van Cleek to say, hey, but where do you have any readings from from church history where they're using it the way that the Texas Receptus renders it? Because White is saying, hey, looks like this is a brand new reading of this text and that should give you some some concern. That looks like a change or an oops an error, and that's why he's asking about inspiration and all that stuff. But it's really kind of fascinating because that's his response. That's I think it's a good response when someone precepts you, you can go back to evidence. <laughs> right. And uh, also it's funny that, I don't know if you picked up on it, but Van Cleek said, uh, it's whether or not the Spirit of God convinces you of such. And again, White seems to be think this is ridiculous. But White is a Calvinist who literally believes that it is a spirit that regenerates you to convince you of faith, like to convince you of Jesus Christ. So it's it's like, White, you'd be frustrated all day long, but you should actually affirm all these things because you're a Calvinist. And this is, again, this is why presuppositionalism and Calvinism often go hand in hand, right? It's just, that's why it's weird when you come across a Calvinist, like, evidentialist, because it means that they believe that 
that would mean that evidence can convince you and they don't believe that you're able to, which is why they presuppose it. Cause why wouldn't you, if you just yeah. believe God will just save people arbitrarily, well, then I just have to presuppose God exists and hopefully he'll save you. <laughs> like hopefully that the spirit rege regenerates you. If not, it's not on me. Um, the spirit gave you the correct understanding and the full regeneration and not just a temporal evanescent grace that just gives you just enough grace to give you evidence and knowledge of Jesus and the Holy spirit just to then reject it and give you a reason to reason for God to hold you accountable and white affirms evanescent grace. Uh, we have an episode where we're playing clips from white on evanescent grace. And it's kind of interesting because even from Van Cleek's perspective, right? He's saying the spirit is convincing you of these different doctrines, one of the doctrines, but how do you know if the doctrine that, that the spirit is convincing you of is true or it's, it's just evanescence. It's just fading. It's temporal that you're going to later reject well i mean um, white kind of goes into that with the mormon thing the, why, why is the mormon wrong when they like well, I have a different spirit and that's weird right and he says that it's like well they have a different spirit they're convinced of this and their feelings are saying that they're right but the like if tyler vela who you know uh apostatized and left the faith like oh a, a, a lesser like a lesser known apologist but an apologist nonetheless for christianity tyler vela he was a Calvinist, right? And if you ask a Calvinist three years ago, they'd be like, oh yeah, Tyler Vela saved. He asked Tyler, he'd probably be like, yeah, I saved. I know for a fact that I'm saved. The spirit has told me, the spirit has communicated this to me. Everyone else would affirm it. And now suddenly he's not. Well, it means that that's why this whole, like the spirit told me language is not good. Like whenever I hear that, I'm always like red flag. Not because I don't believe the Holy Spirit works, but because it tells me that you actually don't have reasons for stuff. You just have feelings for stuff. And whenever you have strong feelings about stuff, you, you, you like, Tell, say it's a spirit that told you that you go whatever way the wind blows and whatever way the wind blows you think is the spirit blowing you, attribute, in that direction. you attribute it to the spirit which is the same problem when you have someone who's like well um you know i believe that god just wants me to be happy so i left my husband yeah you know white like was, yeah what was correct about bringing up mormons in this because it's almost universal we talk to mormon they will point to a spiritual experiment experience that uh proved to them that Mormonism is correct. That's essentially one of the tenets of Mormonism. Now, I won't say it's universal, but it's pretty much every time you see a Mormon that's talk the, about it. They're that's the burning in the bosom, right? That's what they, that's like kind of a, the stereotype, the burning in the bosom that they know. Yeah. Um, and then also, uh, he says that, uh, and this is why, uh, actually, this is why presuppositional apologetics is so easy. Like, you want to be an apologist, like, if you want to, like, presuppositional apologetics is the easiest laziest apologetic out there because it doesn't take a lot of effort if you just presuppose you're right and just try to make everyone else basically justify their positions and you don't feel like you have to study to get the evidence to demonstrate such like you tell me who studied more for that debate between van cleek and white white has studied more there, he knows specific spots he knows the greek he knows these different things he He's more well studied in textual history and the history of the church. He just is in this area, which I'm, I'm throwing white a bone. And of course, white hates, he dislikes me so much, he blocked me on Twitter. So yeah. uh, you can but, even see it in what's in front of him, right? right. Have, white has books, he even has, I uh, forget which one it was, but essentially like a 1540 whatever um, translation of scripture from 
on his desk. And what does Van Cleek has? He has a little white three ring binder with maybe like three pages. Right. And then just presupposes he's right and that the spirit communicated the exact truth to him and not to white. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that right there, I mean, white is more prepared because he's arguing like an evidentialist. You actually have to try when you're an evidentialist. You actually have to study when you're an, an evidentialist. You actually have to learn your stuff a little bit to be able to engage these conversations. But presuppositional apologetics is just lazy. Um, I, I know I'm good. I'll, I'll probably catch some heat from that, but it is. It, I find it lazy. It is what it is. Just like I find anyone who is like a lot of the stuff they find in like fundamental circles when it comes to their theology, I find their theology like wooden and lazy. Uh, and it's whatever. Certain people just certain things are just like that. But, but well, yeah, just, too, that the that the the presuppositional argument from Van Cleek is actually forcing white to become very condescending about prayer. So he's actually like, well, did you pray about every single text type? Did you pray about every manuscript? Van Cleek, did you do this? And like, but I think White would affirm over and over again in many different circumstances that if something comes up, you pray about it. And he he's assuming that, that the Holy Spirit will help direct you. And if you ask for wisdom, that the Holy Spirit will give it to you. Uh, so it's kind of a strange argument for him to use against Van Cleek because but he, you can kind of see his, his his wheels are spinning a little bit because he's like, uh, I don't know what to do. He's not accepting my evidence. Uh, Got to use evidence. Why are you using precept against me? That's not fair. <laughs> We're on the same team. We're not supposed to use that against each other, just against those atheists. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what, what makes it funny when also Van Cleek makes the ridiculous statement that no one here believes in what they believe because of evidence. That, oh, yeah, you're going to the manuscripts. Like, well, White doesn't have all the manuscripts, so how could he possibly know? But he doesn't realize that he just undercut his own argument. How could you possibly know that? Like, you guys are like, that's just an argument from silence, right? Van Cleek makes yeah. an argument from silence. Like, well, we just don't know of, of out of these 5,600 or 5,100, depending which one they make manuscripts like so and according to him no one makes decisions based on evidence and according to white that's true because we just read we just listened to him a second ago defending presuppositionalism that you don't need evidence right it's because they suppress it they suppress evidence so therefore don't give them the evidence like because if you remember because that means you have to go into neutral ground and suddenly you're a liar but doesn't this make white a bit of a liar to sit there and say presuppositional apologetics is true and then turn around and demand someone like bring forth evidence to convince them otherwise like yeah. isn't it wrong for him to be an evidentialist in one sect and what in one area and then like uh presuppositionalist in the other who's really the liar here it just seems like white is the one who's disingenuous it sounds like he's the dece he's a deceiver. He's more of a snake. Well, and it makes him a liar based on his own words, because the first clip that we played was him saying that if you don't precep, you are being a liar. And I and so according to White, if he didn't precep here, then he is he is lying to his audience and saying that that he's on neutral ground, that he doesn't believe that the TR only position is false. Right. <laughs> We're in Matthew seven territory here, unfortunately, for Dr. White. Yeah, exactly. And this is, uh, and unfortunately, this is like, not saying every Calvinist, but this is actually pretty par for the course for the Calvinist community. Um, you know, there's people that are like, that are, that are better at it than 
others, but this is pretty normal in, in that world, uh, sadly. Uh, you have people like Guillaume Bignon who uh, aren't quite like that, right? But there are those who are like, and it's very, very predominant. And I'll be honest, like, it's like if I was a Calvinist, I'd probably be a precepter too, because it's the, I don't need, like, why would I go through this? the effort of studying and getting all the facts and evidence to present an entire case thinking I, that maybe I, uh, someone could be convinced. Nope. I just like, well, it's only the Holy spirit. So I've just got to tell them to repent and then just assume that I'm right, which I, that's my favorite part about presuppositionalism. Really? I just get to pretend I'm right all the time. Well, that's what Van Cleek is doing, right? He's saying, well, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know what we have so little than what they had before. So, you know, when, when back in the day, when, when uh, they were making the Texas Receptus, maybe they had tons and tons of sign it's back. Um, but, you, you know, they must, they, there might be evidence that they had tons of, of, of reasons to, to create the Texas Receptus the way that they did and with the readings that they did. But all he's, he's doing is undercutting presuppositionalism even more because he's saying, well, if we had that evidence, then I can reject your evidence. And I'm going to reject it anyway. It's gonna, I'm going to presuppose that there's better evidence that we just don't know and we don't have. And we just have to assume because the Holy Spirit is guiding me into this position that I have to believe. And, just rem and remember, and this is why I I say all the time, like when people use Holy Spirit arguments, well, God just told me this. I'm like, okay, well, the same Spirit of God that dwells in you also dwells in me. So why isn't why have why do you have the special revelation that I don't? Is it because maybe you're presupposing that that's the Spirit of God telling you, and not just like some deep conviction or feeling that you have that it, it makes you uncomfortable to go in the other territory? Like I've had conversations with people that like. I think you might be right here, but I'm scared of what could be on the other side. And so it makes me nervous to take the leap. Like I've had those conversations with people. So, uh, yeah, this, the, the, it is funny. And so, um, so yeah, when it really comes down to this, when it comes to presuppositionalism, it is just funny because the guy even admits that he's precepting, right? I mean, he says like straight up, like, oh, I'll just be doing this like a good precept and tell them that they're wrong. And so, it, but then White mocks that when he defends presuppositionalism. Anyway, it just shows that this is why like White blocked me on Twitter because <laughs> when he decided to come, like when he decided to engage me on Twitter and I just kept like kind of dogging him on like the, his double standard here and like he wouldn't answer a simple question and he kept dodging and speaking adjacent to it. It's just like he eventually was blocked and he said like, it was because of his blood pressure to help keep his blood pressure down. But it just, it's no, it's because really what it is at once pressed that white has a double standard here or when he's unclear about something, he does, he's not, he's not, he's speaking adjacent to the topic rather than being direct to it. Or like right here, he just betrays his own words. So white really is, he's just disingenuous in this area. That's sad. And Van Cleek, man, like, man, guy's off his rocker. Yeah, the TR onlyist position is complete garbage. And uh, we had a video recently too, uh, looking at the Pentecostal holiness movement, who are also King James onlyists, and they would even go as far. At least the one guy that I was—I won't say everyone, but I'll say the one guy that I was uh, responding to was saying that if you disagreed with him, you are flirting with the line of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Because he says the spirit is speaking through him. So notice how everyone can just presuppose all kinds of random stuff to make them sound right and and disengage from real argumentation 
on evidence, especially biblical evidence, because they don't want to actually get to the heart of the matter. They would just like to presuppose they're right. So, well, isn't that how Christian cults start? Like Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, all these other like Christian-y kind of cults start is this idea that I have a special revelation from God, the Holy Spirit communicated to me something special they didn't communicate to other people. And you guys cannot question me. This is what's true. Like, that's how this sort of thing starts, where as opposed to like, this is why evidence is important. It's why historical arguments are important. What has the church always taught? What has been the church's stances on these positions? If I, you hold a new theology, maybe you should run away. And that's also what's funny is that when he's like, well, sh- the Bible, they used this Bible for 1100 years. You know, what did what it, like, White argues from history? Meanwhile, he's a Calvinist where Calvinist doctrines didn't even show up until Augustine and, you know, the 400s. So there's like hundreds of years. In fact, there's like straight quotes from early church fathers. I said that like, hey, if you, someone says you're sinful by your very nature and that is innate in you, that they're a false teacher. Like they're responding to Gnostics like that. There's they're, they're that they all say that it's by your own choice that you're like this and that we must choose God. Like Irenaeus and against heresies has like a whole passage on free will. And, and it's like, okay, yeah. wait. You're right. You're. I mean, he's right on textual issues. He's right. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. Now do Calvinism. Yep. <laughs> now do Calvinism. Uh, but what's funny is that you'll see, and it was funny is like even like remember when he responded Warren McGrew with Idol Killer, and Warren was talking about penal substitutionary atonement, and of course White was speaking adjacent to the issue because that's what he does. People think he's speaking to the issue, but if you actually listen to him closely, oftentimes he's speaking adjacent to the issue and not dealing with the actual issue of contention. But it was kind of funny when he was responding to Warren McGrew at Idol Killer about penal substitutionary atonement and Augustine and all these things is that he basically said that Warren was right without saying he was right. He kind of skirted around the historical issue because it's almost like he knows that he, that these things are true, but that would undercut his argument because he always argues from history until suddenly it becomes inconvenient. So he's a good reminder to all of us to be careful about the argumentation we use. Be careful about the, the standards that you're setting forth because you might end up having to live by your own standards. And that's a big reason why we talk out against speak out against progressive Christianity, because we believe that they do it probably at the worst of most, because they definitely can't live up to their own crazy standards. And, no joke. Um, and the other thing to think about too, with if, the, if you believe that the Holy spirit gave you this new revelation that the Holy spirit for thousands of years, reading out scripture is always consistent with himself. And then he manages to give you new and yet contradictory information. You have to wonder, is that the Holy Spirit? Exactly. He manages to be consistent and non-contradictory the whole time. And then when you got the revelation, now it's now it's brand new and different. <laughs> and this is why, like you said, it's really important that we always self-examine because like White is a very well-known apologist and the, a theologian, right? He's very well-known. Do I think he's that great in every area? No, but he's very well-known, okay? He's a strong popularizer or so someone that just irritates people, whatever. Like he's well-known and for positive and negative reasons, depending on who you ask. But he's making like you just like we just showed two clips. It's a big blunder. It's a big contradiction in his own view. So it is a reminder in us to be careful uh, what we say, 
and not to contradict ourselves and be careful with our thought processes and then being willing to admit when we're wrong. Uh, you know, that's why you and I, I, you and I purposely made sure we did a rebuttal to myself, uh, like last year, I think, or is it yeah. earlier this year? It was early this year. Yeah. We yeah. Didn't... <laughs> yeah, we, we we wrecked me. Like we we owned that guy, and but it was because it was like, well, we got a bit where we're wrong. We got it like expose that because one of the things that you and I talked about when we first started the church split, which was we want intellectual integrity. That was one of the values we actually like penned down was intellectual integrity. And we want to be willing to challenge ourselves and challenge other people. And we also want to be able to be punchy if we have to, and then be okay if people get punchy with us. And know the fact that you can be punchy while also loving each other. And because that's like a weird thing too nowadays. Like if you're punchy, you're considered disrespectful when sometimes you're just being direct. Um, man, my gosh, I still think that people saw when you and I disagree, they would be like, oh my gosh, these guys are best friends. Like they're so, they're so mean to each other. And oh, it's yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> but it's like, you need that. Like, and that's why it's important for us to not make sure we don't hold ourselves to impossible standards and that we're willing to admit where we're wrong. And sometimes we have to admit where we're only partially wrong and we need to improve a little bit. Um, there's definitely been things that you and I both said on episodes that we're like, ah, we probably could have said that a little bit better. Cool. Yeah. You know, move on, but just be careful not to, not to be a hypocrite and not to set impossible standards. And also this should be a, another indication not to pe hold people on pedestals because we're all people. You know, like, I think you and I both talked about that, too. Like, if anyone was like, well, the church split teaches this and Brian Bodie believes this. Will Hess believes that. Yeah. Fact. Uh, yeah. <laughs> seriously. Like, if you just be like, if you just like become like molded in our theological image, um, I'm worried that you don't think for yourself because you should disagree with me somewhere. Or at least if you end up agreeing with me everywhere, then at least I do so where you really thought about it. And in which case, we're just very like minded. But yeah, just because the problem is there's a lot of Dr. White bots out there, right? And they just regurgitate what he says without really thinking twice on whether or not he's contradicted himself or whether his position is reasonable or whether that's what the text says or you get the idea. So just be careful. Now, don't become a bot of a person's teachings. It's like, be careful, be thoughtful. And if you end up agreeing with all of them, cool. But like, be careful. Yeah. Well, great. Well, anything so. else we want to talk about this episode? I thought I think we kind of beat to death kind of the precept issue. Um, like I said, I wouldn't watch this whole debate, but if you if you have nothing to do for three and a half hours and you want a little bit of entertainment, go ahead and watch it. There's some it, you will get one of the classic James White apologizing to the audience because his debate opponent isn't doing what he wants him to. So if you want that, that's that's kind of the that three quarters in <laughs> to this debate. If you want to see that that fun exchange. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously we think the TR only position is garbage. We think White has great evidence to prove them wrong, but it was quite funny watching um, him spin out a little bit, not understanding how to respond to someone who just like, oh, I just presuppose it be true. And that's it. I don't care what evidence you have. It's just like every other thing, I believe. And so be careful that you, your own argumentation isn't used against you um, because that can might, that might throw you, uh, throw you a curveball and might be hard to respond to. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that we disagree with white on Calvinism and presuppositionalism. We disagree with that guy on TR onlyism and presuppositionalism. So it was worth just a fun little debate to listen to. If you just want to lose brain cells or just be fascinated with how people can presume their positions and stuff, like then give it a listen. But otherwise, I would just say uh, skip it.
but it is definitely something I'm glad we talked about because it does expose White's double standard, I think, especially with somebody out with his platform. I think more people need to show that double standard. So we're all about challenging the status quo. White's a status quo. That's all there is to it. So with that said, guys, I appreciate you all. Uh, coming on here, listening to us ramble about this. If you haven't already, again, like and subscribe. Um, shoot us an email if you want to contact us for anything. Partner with us on Patreon if you want. Uh, your, your giving does actually legitimately help us. We're, we're, we're improving the channel even more. We have some more things we're adding to the channel. We've started putting out shorts, which is new for us, but that is something we wanted to do um, because we understand that that's what a lot of people have time for or a lot of people will consume. So we do that. That takes a little extra time and, and, and financial gains. So uh, full financial resources so we appreciate you giving and uh with that being said uh brian you have anything else to say no i guess the only thing i'd say is in addition to all that i would recommend join our facebook group uh the church split apologetics and discussion group uh there's a lot of great theologians in there uh people ask some really great questions and there's really fantastic comments so if you're just one of those that likes to observe interesting discussions in the comment threads that is the place to be i highly recommend it yeah, it is a great community. There's some people in there that are far smarter than you and I who are just in the group. And it's fantastic to have them along the ride. And that's the thing. It's like we have people of all sorts of specialties. So join us there on the Facebook discussion page. I don't think you're going to regret it. Uh, and it's great. But answer the questions. Like answer the questions because I have a we have a intensive admin team who is very quick to reject people who don't oh, yeah. answer questions. They will bounce you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, they do not care. Uh, no matter how many times we're like, no, no, just let people in and see if they really get nasty. Uh, no, no, that's not how they roll. But uh, <laughs> anyway, guys, I appreciate you guys uh, checking us out. And we'll see you next time on The Church Split. So take care and God bless. And guys, if you want to avoid seeing obnoxious ads like this, we gotta be strong, we gotta be healthy. When you wanna feel nice and strong and satisfied, you gotta check out Good Ranchers. Right now, go to goodranchers.com, use promo code Knowles. Or that. We also wanna thank Free Life Soap, because I don't know about y'all, yes. but I got a new shipment of soap yes, in. I did. Yes, I did. Yes, And it was great. Or this. Hi guys, my name is Will, and I'm here to tell you why you should be a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Or that. To get to that momentarily first, I want to talk to you about Daily Wire's most trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of this show, ExpressVPN. Are you aware that your browsing data is constantly being tracked and monitored? Please support us on Patreon. We do not want to annoy you filthy heretics with any sort of ads on this show. So when you're a Patreon subscriber, you also get access to our apologetics classes and other video content a whole month. Of things. You can support us on Patreon for as low as $1 a month.